Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, and before I even begin, I know that I always say this, but for real, the film from today's episode is a movie that I always wanted to cover on this podcast from the beginning. I had about uh, 10 on a list. One was the uh, Staircase Lady from The Untouchables, a colonial marine from Aliens. You get the point. But I always wanted a student from the classroom of Dead Poet Society. I like it when there are groups of people and I can get one of them. And today was almost a two-bird, one-stoner because I also really wanted someone from the orgy scene from Eyes Wide Shut. Did I also get them today? You're going to have to listen in to find out. This is I Was There Too, the show where I talk to people present in the great scenes of cinema history. My name is Matt Gorley, and today's film, Dead Poet Society, was a huge inspiration for me when I was a younger man. As you might imagine, I was that age when the film came out, and the movie aspires to be nothing if not inspirational. It's all about seizing the day. Well, it worked on me. The minute I saw that thing, I was out just splashing in puddles, asking young ladies on dates. I went skydiving. I even auditioned for a Shakespeare play, Midsummer Night's Dream, no less, around the same time. But instead of playing Puck like the main character in this film does, I got the part of Oberon because somebody dropped out. Now, Oberon is a very virile, sensual, king of the sex forest type of guy. And I was just a real scrawny kid. And uh, I had this line... Uh, my gentle puck and I kept joking in rehearsal like what if I said my gentle fuck and I accidentally did on opening night and the play was being presented at an all-girls Catholic high school and I can't believe that I even did any acting after that point more so because of what I was wearing that was more embarrassing than what I had said I can't explain it but I was wearing a turtleneck that was like <laughs> metallic thread and a hat that could only be described as a pineapple I imagine the character of Oberon looking kind of, I don't know, vaguely ethnic and sexy like The Rock, but instead it was as if Spud from Train Spotting was beat red from saying my gentle fuck and wearing a Carmen Miranda hat. But nonetheless, I was out there seizing the day. 
I think I carpe diem so much that I burnt myself out on carpe dieming. I, I just, that was my motto. That was everything I wanted to do in college. And now my carpe diem is being okay, seizing the couch, just, just feeling that it's okay to not seize the day anymore. That in itself is seizing the day. Choosing not to seize the day. It's not a cop out. I, I put in my time seizing the day. My seizing the day now is not seizing the day. I'm going to state it right here. It doesn't mean the movie doesn't affect me. I watched it again. And I was a little nervous that it wasn't going to mean anything to me anymore. But I still think that like the setting and the music of this film is so good. And I think it still even resonates in a new way, too, when you look at the scene where Mr. Keating, Robin Williams, is having the boys in his class, and this film is set in the late 50s, I think, look at the boys that went to the school in the 1800s and saying they're all food for worms now and they're dead. And thinking that, in a way, the boys that are in this film can look back at this film and see their younger selves and it reminds you that it's all cyclical and <laughs> sad. <laughs> I don't know where I was headed with that, but I got there. My guest today is Kurt Leitner, who plays Lester, one of the students in the class, and he was just uh, really fun to talk to, and the interview is a really good time, and he has a lot of great information about the production, like what happened to Robert Sean Leonard, the actor who played the main character of Neil after the character of Neil isn't in the film anymore, what it was like to shoot at this beautiful school. It was really nice to talk to him. And speaking of talking, I just looked at the time code. My, but I've been rambling. I'd like to apologize by ending this intro and starting the interview. The film, Dead Poet Society, the year 1989. The role, Lester, the actor, Kurt Leitner. Okay, Kurt Leitner. I have a question for you about the classroom of Mr. Keating. Did you get to pick your own desk or was it assigned like in school? Keating doesn't strike me as the type of mean teacher that would assign seats. Wow. Uh, well, your instincts are, are spot on. It was really uh, an amazing situation. The director had us enter the classroom and he planted certain key actors in certain key desks, uh -huh. about five or six all setting up the final scene where people stood on their desks. He knew where each student was going to be standing in the final shot of the film. So on the first day of shooting, he set up the last shot of Keating's exit. Ah. And by doing that, uh, everyone, those chosen few, including Ethan Hawke, whose legs, uh, whose, um, his point of view is at the final moment with Mr. Keating. Yeah. Um, they planted all the people in their desks and, uh, one student had to – they were shooting between his legs. Then after they planted those guys, those guys sat down. Then Mr. Weir invited us to pick our own seats. And so, so we all scrambled. What was – yeah, what was the thinking in choosing the seat that you chose? You're in the – if you're facing the students, in Mr. Keating's position from the head of the class, you are in the front row to the far left in correct, the corner, right? Correct, correct. With the so, pencil behind you. With the pencil. The uh, in my genius instinct, I said front row seat, yeah. best seat. No, <laughs> I, went, I went to the head of that row, which was just outside frame with most of the POV shots of Mr. Keating. When did you realize that? Well, when I saw the movie. Oh, okay. So you didn't see any monitor shots? And no, uh, I couldn't do that. So in reality, I'm right there on the front lines. Nothing better, honestly. Uh, but when you saw the finished product, we're like, no. Oh, yeah, and then good since that moment, we lovingly called that row the Dead Rose Society because <laughs> <laughs> the first two to three seats were like blocked off. 
And it all depends on the um, aspect ratio. Uh -huh. So when you – I think when the DVD was first released, it, it didn't – it wasn't in widescreen. I think you had the option. OK. So that's right. It was one of those flip over discs. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because I had it, I think. Right. Yeah. And so when I saw, I was like, uh, when I saw the widescreen, I saw more of you're myself back, because back, I was yeah. the head of the Dead Row Society. You know? Okay. Well, I don't know that I plan to ask you this question this early in, but since you said that this was all, this was all spaced or this was all blocked around that final one hundred percent shot, yeah. when most of the students stand in allegiance with Mr. Keating, from what I can tell, your character of Lester doesn't stand you're not team keating that's correct there were some students in that oh, classroom that were Kurt. conflicted and i learned a word that day did you get to choose or were you assigned your <laughs> support we, or not no we were assigned okay. we were absolutely assigned for the aesthetic of the shot um ah. but in doing so we were defined as characters in that moment sure. and so at that point i then had to join a group which i was uh, which I learned was called the anti-devotees or devotees. Oh, wow. So I was not a devotee of Mr. Keating at that point. And I was conflicted. Yeah, because I, <laughs> I see like scenes when he's doing his Shakespearean improv that you are very much in, on board. We are. We are. Yeah. But in the final moments, it was that, you know, that um, pressure. Conform conformity yeah. or um, yeah. non-conform. In and a way, you, you were not conforming, proving his point. Just like uh, yeah, yeah, Nuanda. Right, right. Choosing not to, um, but yeah, yeah. That was and but again, emotionally, we were defined in that moment of people standing proud to support him and other students who are conflicted. So that that's the you know the character twist. Oh man! All right. Well, we've bookended this interview with the beginning and the ending of where, what all goes in between. Let's start with how the process started with you. How you got on board with this film. Okay, so um, I was in high school and uh, I was doing a lot of theater and I was always interested in acting and I had done some community shows. And word got out to a few of the high school theater um, students that there were some after-school specials being shot in the area. Which this was, is Delaware, This right? is Delaware. Yeah. Big, big deal. Uh, anything, <laughs> sure, right? Yeah. <laughs> anything more than chicken farms. <laughs> it's very exciting. Um, but no, we have a great growing art culture there. But when an after-school special came, they kind of came around to schools to see if different people were interested. I jumped on. I had a great experience as a background artist. <laughs> uh, and then they did an, another film in the area called Stealing Home with Mark Harmon and Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah. And uh, we went and uh, performed in that as background artists, a group of uh, theater students from different high schools, got on a big bus. And in doing so, I met some local casting directors. And when Dead Poets was coming to town, coming to my own backyard, um, I got word of the auditions through the casting directors I'd worked with before, and they said, "Please come in." Uh, and they were going to every school in the area, every student that they could find, almost every boy, fourteen to eighteen, in the state of Delaware, in you know wow. high school, if you were interested, would meet with them. So I went in for my initial <clears throat> audition, and at that time, the role of Knox Overstreet was still not finalized which ultimately went to Josh Charles. So we were told this was the role to fight for. So I actually auditioned for that role. Uh. And I find out later that it was Josh's role to lose, uh -huh. that he was definitely leading all the way. And in Peter Weir's own words, he no one could outcharm him. And he did a great job. Yeah. Uh, but that's the kind of fight I was going for. <laughs> so because I auditioned for Josh, I was on the short list for Knox Overstreet, as were a few other students. Then um, – in waiting to hear back whether or not I got that role, I got a call to be a body double for Knox Overstreet. Oh. So there's a shot where he goes um, – he gets dressed up and leaves by car, leaves town and goes to um, 
is it Ginny Danbury's the, house? Yeah, right? the, yeah, the Danbury's house. Yeah, yeah. So that whole the Danbury house scene, um, they needed a body double to fill in for Josh, who wasn't available yet. And this was at the end of October, and they wanted to get shots with all the leaves on the oh, trees. Yeah. So I and another actor were body doubling uh, two of the actors who were going to do the ultimate scene. Um, and in doing um, – when I worked that initial day, um, I met – they also were doing wardrobe tests. So they said, OK, Kurt's here. He's doing body double. Let's get him in the uh, uniform. And so f- for a moment in time, I'm standing in a field. Uh, it's raining. <laughs> Peter Weir's holding an umbrella over my head. John Seals, you know, five feet away. And I'm just like, what's going on? <laughs> I'm standing – and Peter says, do you want to do more of this? Oh, this is how it happened. You were just a body double first. Right. Still waiting here about Josh. Okay. And then Peter says, do you want to do more of this? I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I would love to do more of this. And he's like, oh, okay. And then didn't say anything official. So then um, I hear from the casting director later that I wanted to be called in as a finalist. Mm -hmm. So even at that time, um, there was going to be seven main poets in the classroom. Uh, we call we call those students poets. I don't know if that sounds funny. Yeah, so seven no, main poets. They're the dead poets. The same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. So those seven <laughs> poets were the main poets, and then there were going to be three other poets, and then another ten people to fill up the classroom. So at that point, I knew I didn't have the role of Knox Overstreet, but I had a chance to be one of the supporting poets, uh-huh. the supporting three, and it got down to um, I think there was. 22 of us to fill 20 spots. So two people had to get cut. Very nerve wracking. We're in a room standing around Peter Weir talking about poetry. So everyone's doing their best (laughs) to kind of hold their ground and inspire and And look uh, like they love all of this. I love it. I love it. And who knows? Maybe they're sitting there typecasting like you're too tall. But we don't know. Right. But you want to have that chemistry and that dynamic. And one guy actually got cast out of that group and he said no because they said we have to cut your hair. And so he's like – no. What? I know. So they didn't cut his hair so that he didn't get to that down the one guy who got cut. I don't know who that guy was. I don't remember. Although I, I do have to say like a flat top at that time, you basically had to walk around with a flat top for the shoot of that film. And right? guess what? Voluntarily. So, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That wasn't even their suggestion? <laughs> so they're like, you're deep in character. Yeah. So I assumed, I'm like, flat top. And uh, <laughs> my, my friend who was also in the classroom who I became friends with, he came out. It was just nice trim. I go, what's going on? He goes, no, we don't have to get flat tops. I was like, mm. but <laughs> I made up for it with the pencil. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I was like, let's go for this. Mm-hmm. I guess I was getting method or something. Yeah. Well, it must have shown and it worked. Yeah, it was tough. But then from that point on, um, I, I get a phone call saying, we invite you to the party and you're going to be in the classroom and, and the adventure began. But then there's also adventure within the adventure. I'm sure. But so when you got word that you were going to be one of the students in the class, was Robin Williams signed on at this point? Because from what I read, it was uh, up until last minute that he was committed. In fact, didn't some scenes get shot before he was even committed and they had to like uh, – Burn those things. In fact, let me read you this quote really quickly. The studio wanted Robin Williams, and Robin wouldn't say no, but he wouldn't say yes to working with that director. It was maybe it was a previous director. In fact, we prepped the movie, built the sets. It was going to be shot site outside of Atlanta. So, of course, this is before you were 
involved. And Robin just didn't show up for the first day of shooting. He never said he would, but Disney kept trying to pressure him by moving forward. After the first day he didn't show up, they canceled the production and burned the sets. We actually have dailies of the sets burning. So this whole thing had gone through a whole process before they arrived in Delaware, I guess. I, I, I know some things, but I don't know that. So okay. I don't even know if that's some kind of crazy urban legend. It could like be. Burning sets oh, and but shooting you, dailies. You know who said this was the screenwriter, I believe. Tom Shulman? Yes. Um, I think he said that in something I watched. So, boy, I'm probably perpetuating an urban legend right now. But let's just say – Well, that, that is an interesting one because from my point of view, they had searched uh, Georgia and they had searched New England and they were trying to find something to represent New England as a location. And at the last minute, they found Delaware uh-huh. because the location manager had known of Delaware where no one else did. Yeah. And that's kind of our experience in life too. We don't <laughs> – It <laughs> is just, so incredibly beautiful isn't it? in that film. This film – is more responsible for my understanding of like romanticism because I was the same age basically as yep, you yep. when it came out. I was in the play Midsummer Night's Dream when this came out um, and I ate this movie up. It oh, did so much for me. That is it, great. Probably for better and for worse. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> it it made me do too many carpe diems. <laughs> But going back, I couldn't stand on the desk. But in reality, I would have stood on the desk. I would have thrown the desk out the window. Yeah. I mean it, I would have been all over <laughs> Mr. Keating, whatever he needed. <laughs> what was your response when you heard you were going to be in this and Robin Williams was the teacher? Were you thrilled? I mean you must have grown up on Mork and Mindy like I did. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. Um, it, it was interesting because I was – I had just known about Peter Weir from Witness and I was just aware of filmmaking, um, the filmmaking process. I was a fan of films but um, – and I knew Robin Williams for what you said, Mork and Mindy and I, I thought that was great. I think I was more excited about the movie itself but Robin yeah. Williams was definitely um, a, a bonus uh-huh. and Peter Weir a bonus, yeah. not, not realizing how both of those men would further inspire me in life and that that whole experience would take me to a whole other level. Right. And you must have bonded with all the other boys in the class, right? Do you still keep in touch with any of them? There, there are a few. Um, you know, Ethan doesn't return my call anymore. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love him. Uh, no, but there's, you know, just as best friends you grow up with in life, people get busy and lose yeah. touch. So there are some people that I have stayed in touch with, and there are a few right after that for a couple of years I was in touch with. But for the most part, there might be only one or two. And how many of you guys were local hires? And just was it all the non-dead poets, really? Yeah, well, one of the one of the main poets was from Philadelphia, so that's pretty close. We'll take credit for that. Okay, um, and, <laughs> and they they did cast about three or four students from St. Andrews, where it was shot. Is so, is the reluctant? Yes. Uh, yes. W- how should we describe that guy? The, the reluctant poet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Listeners would probably remember him from the film because he's the one that writes the poem about the cat sat on the mat. Shat. He what? The cat shat on the mat. Is that what he says? Yes. I've seen this movie a million times. I don't think that's what I understood it to be. Oh my god! Well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll double check that. But I think there was a take where he said "shat." Oh, that makes more sense, though. Yeah. Oh my god! And he he ends up standing on the desk in the end as yeah, well. Yeah, he was changed. Now, here's a funny thing about him: as actors, we're on the set, and we want this full experience. There were some students um, who were a little bit reluctant because. They were in the middle of their school year. At the school. Yeah, they're in the middle of their finals of the season, uh, the first semester. They had a lot of studying to do, which I absolutely respected. So academically, they had a lot of pressure, whereas we actors were having the time of our lives. (laughs) So when he was handed a line, it was like, oh, 
more work. Wow. And it was like the more he resisted, the more he seemed to be getting moments in the movie. <laughs> He's perfect for that role. He, <laughs> he was perfect. Is St. Andrews a military academy? Is no. It, no. No, no. It's like a prep school. Yeah, it's a prep school. Yep, it's a boarding school. Because he seems like someone who would have had trouble with his parents since parents sent him off to boarding school or something. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I believe he was a wrestler at that school. Oh, that and, makes sense. And, uh, but it was so great. I mean that was uh, one of those wonderful moments that we had uh, local kids from the school literally, some kids from Delaware, some people from New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and then the rest I think came out of New York. So it was a big East Coast experience. How old were you when you were in the film? I was uh, – I think I was 18. Done with high school or still – Yeah, in? I was done with high school. Oh, man. I was going off to college. Perfect summer. And this was and kind of a – yeah, exactly. This was kind of a fun poetic moment. Um, I was in an acting class at a university uh, where I started to take classes. I wasn't exactly sure what my major was going to be because after the film, I wanted to be a film director. But I started – but before this happened, I was – wasn't sure about that. So I went to the University of Delaware and started taking classes. I was in an acting class. And it was going pretty well and I was bonding and I had to announce to the class, I'm sorry, I have to leave. I'm going to shoot a movie. For, <laughs> forgive me. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I have to go do the things you all wish you could be doing. <laughs> I won't be back Monday. Uh, and it was one of those moments where my parents were like, hmm, this is where Kurt's going. Like he's enrolled in university. There's oh, a yeah. part in the movie. What is he going to do? And it was like, yeah, I'm going to go here. Did they eventually support that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they really did. Um, And again, we didn't know how valuable, amazing experience it would be. It was an opportunity. It was exciting, but it could have also been disposable. Yeah. We didn't know how wonderful the film was going to turn out. Right. The millions of people it was going to touch or how it would inspire me to continue in that world and and be somewhat successful. How long after this did you leave Delaware? Here's Uh, what I know about Delaware. Delaware. Here's what I know about Delaware. (laughs) Joe Biden. And isn't it where almost every credit card company exists for some tax loophole reason or something like that? <laughs> That's exactly right. We have one of the most lenient and corporate – first state. Yeah, There's first state. Too, yeah. First state and no sales tax and chicken farms. Um, <laughs> so yeah, credit card capital of the world and corporation capital of the world. That's yeah, right. just because of lenient uh, laws. And a lot of times the bigwigs like Disney when they're suing each other, they have to come to Delaware to fight like Michael Eisner has to show up. And they, yeah, they come to Delaware to fight. That's kind of the reputation for them. We have to go to Delaware. It's like a big courthouse. Wow. Weird. Okay, so let's talk about Lester. That's your character's name. Did you give him this name or was it in the script? How did he end up being called Lester? <laughs> okay. This is the second time I've asked this question today because I just discussed uh, The Revenant and I found myself asking, how did he get the name Stubby Bill? <laughs> That's a good so, question. How did he get the name Lester? That is a good question. Okay, so um, – one of the great things about this experience is how organic it was. So earlier I was saying how Peter set certain students in certain desks and said, take your seats. Uh-huh. He didn't, And so wherever we thought we sat was where our character would see, sit. And then um, after we were kind of um, planted and we were going to start shooting, he said, please, one at a time, stand up and introduce yourself. And um, each person did. And when it came around to me, I stood up and said, hi, uh, my name is Lester. Were you supposed to introduce yourself as a character or an know. actor? I don't know what happened. I was possessed. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. If I could go back, I would. I was. I should have used my father's name to honor him. Um, but different students were saying different names, and I just thought I'm supposed to introduce myself as a character name, and that's what popped into my head. So some other students were doing that as well. Yeah, yeah. And then okay. it was funny because one character whose name was uh, Jim. 
I'm sorry, his real name was Jim. He said, hi, my name's Jim, and I yell out Spaz uh, from Meatballs, right? That's how that guy got named Spaz? And he got named Spaz. <laughs> it was I like, was always wondering why the guy that looks like Spaz from Meatballs, <laughs> but that's an anachronism because this would have happened first, and therefore maybe Spaz and Meatballs was actually named after this guy. <laughs> Let's say that's happened. Or remember Spaz's dad is in Meatballs when he drops him off? That's this student. Let's let's do a world building. Dead poets and meatballs exist in the same universe. <laughs> but but what was funny is he immediately said, "No, no, my name's Jim." And then no, someone else goes, "No, Spaz, Spaz." And we all start chanting Spaz, and that was too late. He was Spaz. You you are responsible for the name. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And what's really amazing about the industry in this moment in time with this movie is that. Because he became Spaz, they amped that up. He's got allergies. Yeah. And, and then they cast Spaz's father. So they cast Spaz's parents. Oh, for, my God. Yeah. And so all of a sudden that man gets a job because that guy is being embellished. You deserve a writing credit for this film. Oh, yeah. Right. And, and there's no Lester in my family. It doesn't make any it just, sense. I was possessed. It doesn't make any sense. That's wonderful, though. And uh, if I look back, I would have liked to have called myself Turtle. Because I thought that was a cool nickname, especially, and it might have been because I can't run too fast in the soccer <laughs> team, you know. And like that'd be kind of cool. And of course, Turtle becomes very famous on Entourage, and I was like, That's I right. could have been Turtle. Why am I Lester? <laughs> Doesn't. Well, let's let's talk about your character because you frequently have a pencil behind your ear. Which was was that your idea of like, well, here we are, a bunch of white guys with the same haircut in the same uniform. I got to differentiate myself a little. That's smart thinking. Is yeah, that right? That's exactly right. Okay. Um, I didn't normally do that. It just kind of like. On one That's hand, brilliant. I'm calling myself Lester. On the other hand, I'm like I'm putting a pencil behind my ear because it just you know it's just more distinguished. Yeah, because you've got Spaz is very distinct because he's got like the proto nerd glasses. I mean, he's like a proto nerd. Right. Then there's this blonde kid with the wire rim glasses. Yep, that stick. Uh, stick, which is his nickname from his last name. I think was uh, Sticlorius. It was Greek. Okay. And then we got Lester with the pencil behind his ear. Yeah, and those were the three supporting poets. That's. Uh, I didn't in, – in the world of seven uh -huh. poets and then three additional, those three guys, including myself, were the additional. You were, but then you don't stand on the desk, Kurt. I know. I was conflicted. Because Peter Weir <laughs> said for the composition of his shot. But you that, can't argue that. You can't go, look, I know you want this thing to look a certain <laughs> way, but I really think Lester would stand. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, the number one question I got for the first five years after the movie came out was – did you stand on the desk? Yeah. And I, I didn't expect that. But everybody said, did you – they just – that just stuck with them. There are two types of people in this world, the desk standers yes. and the desk sitters. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then now it's become more about Robin Williams for obvious reasons. Yeah. So which I, I appreciate. I love. I'll answer every question. But yeah. but yeah, it was just such an interesting thing. That was the first question. Wow. Yeah. Now, um, in the scene where uh, Robin Williams, Mr. Keating, goes through everybody doing their own individual walk – you very clearly choose a chicken walk. Again, one of those uh, life or art reflecting life moments oh, where – chicken farm. It's Delaware. Is that where this is heading? No? Oh. There was a movie called Pandemonium starring Paul Rubens, uh, an early role. Okay. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, and they I go haven't. to a mental hospital uh -huh. and that mental hospital has a guy coming out and he acts like a chicken. He just <laughs> thinks is... he's a chicken. I had no idea there was this many layers to the backstory of these characters. <laughs> but here's the great compliment. Yeah. Peter Weir creates a set where we can organically perform in situations and I really thought that added so much to that movie. Uh -huh. And I, it's very, very grateful for it. So whether it's announcing your own name, sitting where you want to sit, 
and it's just reflecting the entire theme of the film. So when Mr. Keating's like, walk the way you want to walk, the one, the only scripted thing was that Nuanda stands out. Yeah. So it was – and so he just – they captured what we would all do. So the first thing that popped in my head was this chicken guy. <laughs> so I start doing a chicken walk, which I later convert to a Charlie Chaplin wand. Oh, walk. you do? Yeah, okay, yeah. Because yeah. I thought – because they just roll. Yeah. Um, so it's like I can't keep doing this chicken walk. It's getting annoying and it's exhausting me. <laughs> yeah. How, so, much time, how much walking time do you think you guys shot? Uh, probably about – Probably about 10, 15 minutes, honestly. Wow. Yeah, they just rolled yeah. because they wanted to see some organic things happening. Sure. And then, of course, what happened is everybody did fall into place and conform and start marching together. Wow. So it was just kind of like they found that rhythm, um, which was the point of that scene. But before that, it was just like I this is I learned so much about myself. Somehow <laughs> Lester comes out, then it goes to Chicken Man, then it goes to Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> yeah. But guess what? What? The trailer that comes out cuts to me doing the chicken walk. I'm in a scene in the trailer – because of the chicken walk. Did you see that before the movie came out? The trailer? Yeah. Yes. And were you just I was like, just, yeah, blown you must have away. been cloud nine, right? Blown away. Yeah. All I'm right. Just- <laughs> we'll leave it on that. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. We're back. I'm uh, obsessed with the idea that Spaz in this film is the, is the father of Spaz from Meatballs. We're talking to Kurt Leitner, who played Lester, uh, a name <laughs> he just threw out in the moment. <laughs> Not even in my family anywhere, ever. Has have you ever been called Lester since? Because people know that story. Yeah, it sticks yeah. with you. Yeah, it's well, kind of an ironic twist. That's like I don't know where it came from, and it still kind of haunts me. Very proud to have it, though. Yeah, that's a good badge of honor, I would think. So let's talk about the process of shooting and uh, Robin Williams and what it was like. How much improvising, since he's known for it, did he do? Did you guys do? Yeah, the whole um, experience, um, especially in the classroom, was. Follow the script and then Peter would allow Robin to vamp and he would allow a lot of the students to vamp depending on the, the moment. Um, so there was obviously some scripted stuff. Um, in the first days of shooting, um, he shot Robin reading a story about dogs and eating dogs. I don't know if you remember this moment. We're all kind of gathered around him laughing. Yeah. He's reading us a story. Uh-huh. I don't still don't know the source of that story. But it's just Robin Williams, but it's Mr. Keating reading a story to his students who are really just a bunch of actors getting to know each other on set. And it is absolutely pure improv and laughter, and it's 100 percent real. And those shots of you guys cracking up are all genuine from that and, moment. And there's, there's, it seems that way. Yeah, there's like probably 20 minutes of that footage of us just honestly engaging in a person who's impressing us and exciting us and entertaining us. And then in between takes, um, we always followed his lead. So Mr. Keating, Robin Williams, um, if he went goofy, we'd go goofy with him. If he was serious, we'd stay serious. We'd never want to shake each other up. But the very first take of him entering the classroom from our point of view, um, they were shooting on the students as first impressions of who's this new guy. So Robin comes out. This is the first day we meet him. He comes through the back door of the classroom in front of us and he does this kind of crazy eye gore, like <laughs> dragging his back foot, like crippled, head shaking weirdo man. <laughs> and he kind of presents us and he – we're staring at him. We're frozen. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what we're supposed to do. And then he finally cracks himself up and laughs and breaks <laughs> and then we all laugh. And he's like – I can't – he's like he bet he bet the entire performance in that moment that we were, we were going to crack us up. And he wasn't expecting us to be shot. 
Like, what do we do? I know that's what he's used to yep. doing, probably to break the ice. And here are these people who are second guessing him, thinking, "Are we supposed to play yeah, it straight?" Yeah. And, and and again, that's the reaction you get on film, even if on the other side. Oh, of the, the so shot. that's what you're seeing? Yeah, that must have disarmed him so heavily. Too. <laughs> it did, yeah. and he admitted it. He he was like, he that blew him away because he thought for sure he'd crack us all up, and that was not. That's not what uh, happened. So that kind of strange, like, who's this weird man? What is he up to? Is the natural reaction. So overall, when they were shooting the classroom scenes, they would he would have these organic moments, um, uh, getting real, literally real reactions that would then perfectly blend, like um, when uh, Robin's going off with the John Wayne and Marlon Brando yeah. impression. That's. 100% Robin. I'm sure, and, yeah. And that's 100% us laughing, for real. It must be a testament to Peter Weir, too, and I think even Christopher Nolan, because I've noticed that, you know, Robin Williams isn't always known for his subtlety, and even in his dramatic acting, he can tend toward the sentimental sometimes. Yep. But those two films, this film especially, you see a different side of him that is so reserved and so real it almost doesn't seem like the same guy in other films. And, and was that Peter Weir? Was it the environment? What was your experience with that? I'd, I'd like to think it was Peter Weir 100%. Um, and under his guidance was Robin Williams at that time. But it was just an amazing blend. It, I, it, was, it was almost surreal because we're in the classroom. We're a, we're a person playing a character and this teacher's here. But offset, it's the same thing. We're a person. We're in front of Robin Williams. Right. We're following his lead offset on camera, off camera. So it all became one. It was just an amazing organic process. So if he's <laughs> fooling around, we're fooling around with him. And if he's being serious, we're listening intently. So they could have been following us with cameras the whole time. I don't know how to articulate this, but I'm actually, I don't mean this in a bad way. I'm very envious because like I said, I was this age when this film came out. It was, it's kind of made for someone of my age yeah. and, and, the fact that you got to be there and it's not like when I'm watching it, I wanted to be one of those students back in that day, but but I can imagine that being a student or being an actor in that film is like being one of those students. And what an amazing experience yeah. that must have been. I, I always say I would love to have been in Band of Brothers, but Dead Poet Society is right up there. That must have just been an incredible experience. No, and that's great to hear. And, and um, I hear that a lot. And I don't take it for granted one day in my life. And I'm just very happy to be able to share all that insight and that experience. And it is such a wonderful story to tell. There was no fighting. There was no anger. <laughs> there was no arrogance. It was all just sort of a loving, supporting relationship that really showed on screen. So that was a wonderful directing lesson as well as an acting lesson. That's nice to hear. And in real life, I knew Robin Williams as the goofy, crazy guy. and But here he is in front of me and he could go either way. So uh -huh. if he was goofy and crazy, I was like, I know him. But then if he was sweet and sincere and caring, I was like, this is an interesting part of Robin. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I I – Try as best as I can on this show to do a variety of different films. It's not always easy because it's so much easier for me to interview someone from a film that I love. And I told you this, but this was on my list from the beginning to do because this movie meant so much to me. And so I, I, I sort of am living vicariously through you in the past. I, whatever you want, okay. I'll take you. I'll take you down every road. Um, I, I just have so many questions about. Uh, I, I can't even articulate half of them, but um, – well, oh, go ahead. I also wanted to give credit to this first day on set outside the classroom. We're going onto the soccer field. Uh -huh. And with location shooting, one of the things you always have to worry about is sound. You have to worry about sound all the time, but location is more challenging because you can't control everything. So during the first take of him walking us out to the soccer field, there's a plane flying over. 
and it disrupts the take. That's the audio they cut and we're waiting. And this is the beginning of a long journey. And our uh-huh. first day, we're already – first take, we're already cutting. And this is where it just kind of a miracle before our eyes and ears. So we simply just wait, but not Robin. Robin goes into performance mode. And he goes into this whole unbelievably nonstop stream of consciousness performance that the plane is being flown by Elmer Fudd from Warner Brothers. Uh And he's disrupting the set, which is a Disney set. So he goes into this whole (laughs) – Yeah, for Disney. So then, I mean, it's jaw-dropping. Like we were completely stunned because he's doing the voices. Everything's perfect. And the idea just came to him like lightning as usual. And he goes on this incredible rant of Looney Tune characters in one plane trying to disrupt the Disney set. And then another plane comes in from for a dog fight flown by <laughs> Mickey Mouse and Goofy. And it's like, you know, he's like doing Mickey like, oh, ha, ha, pilot the co-pilot. And uh, and then we don't know what's coming next. He's like, oh, put co-pilot here. And and it's like we don't understand what's going on. It's funny that all of his ad libs have to be period specific and that he had to know that going in, that if he does anything past, what is this, 1959 that this film? Uh, yeah, 50, somewhere yeah 57, 59. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, the idea of um, – and we were told that as um, performers in the movie as well because if you're walking down the hall, you can't say, that's awesome. Right. You have to say that's keen. Yeah. <laughs> you guys that's, shot in chronological order, is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. Weird. The last Amazing. three films I've had on here, I think, have been shot that way, and that's such a rarity. Very rare. And just as Peter was setting up all these shots of um, what I call mystery and wonder of who is John Keating, and then just honest laughter and enjoyment and appreciation, uh, he set us up for a big fall. So when the one character – we don't have to worry about spoilers, right? No. no. <laughs> if it's 25 it's years old. time <laughs> and presumably people are listening to this because they've seen the movie. When the uh, Neil Perry kills himself. What? Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, he was in love with Lester and it broke his heart and uh, um, he kills himself um, – they took Neil uh, – Robert Sean Leonard who played uh, Neil, they took him off the set and and just – Disappeared hit. him? They disappeared him. So we came in the next day not knowing that scene was going to be shot. We didn't uh, understand. So all of a sudden Robert Sean Leonard was out of our lives. We couldn't see him. We couldn't talk to him and there was an empty chair in the classroom and then we're like doing that scene. And, and This Peter- affects you <laughs> emotionally right now. Oh my god. And before the take, Peter is – Boombox uh, has the Mission soundtrack, which is one of the most beautiful, heartbreaking yeah. scores. And he's like um, – he's just like sending out this amazing score and setting the mood. Everything was silent. We're like, where's Robert Sean Leonard, who we call Bobby? And uh, it was just like he was gone. And then all of a sudden the scene of him being dead is real and everyone's crying. Ugh. Everyone is absolutely crying. To this day, if I drop – like a glass of water or something falls on the ground, I go, oh, Neil, oh, my son, he's okay, he's okay, he's all right. I, this movie stays with me in so many ways you can't understand. <laughs> Where I like miss a turn, oh, Neil, oh, Neil, God. My son. My son. Hey, guess what? There's a little moment there before that happens. He goes, that noise. He wakes up. Uh-huh. The father wakes up from the bed and he says, that noise. And that just – I never understood that. And one friend suggested that perhaps he had some sort of moment in his past where somebody killed himself or shot themselves because like it just – it was just an interesting theory. I love the way they edit that too because you don't hear the noise. You just – 
Yeah, yeah, he yeah. Just wakes he up. wakes up like you would. You know that noise would be incorporated in your dream, correct? And then you'd yeah. wake up after the fact, and yeah. But it was, was it was strong enough impression to go investigate. Yeah. And so here here's a great thing. So I was there a lot every day, almost every single day on the set. Um, but there were moments that I didn't see, I wasn't witness to, like that scene where the father and mother discover. And so when I'm watching this movie, it's kind of exciting to see myself. And my friends and seeing Delaware more beautiful than it's ever been. But there's all those amazing magical moments that occurred in, in post-production and shooting other, other scenes that when they reveal the film to me, I can honestly enjoy it like I don't know anything. That's got to be the best so, of both worlds. Yeah, so I'm getting chills. I'm crying. I'm getting uplifted. I'm yelling at myself, why aren't you standing on the desk? So it's just unbelievable. Yeah, especially with the – I love the music to this film so much and it's not even in the movie that much. And in some ways it's very 80s. Like it's synthesizer but it's kind of also like hammered dulcimer. But the the melody of it is so yeah. beautiful in the bagpipes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and also because it's one of the last things that you leave with the film, it goes into that close up of Ethan Hawke yeah. silhouetted by another student's legs yeah. and it was just all set up from the beginning and that that music, that crescendo, that message, <laughs> I mean that is impact. It's amazing how a person standing between two legs could mean two different things when you think of the ending of this film and the poster for For Your Eyes Only. It's two totally different exactly. things with the same composition. <laughs> um, so speaking of pivotal moments that you were there for, the barbaric yop scene – do you remember anything about that? I mean, what was that like in the room? 100% awesome. Um, I mean, Keen. <laughs> this, of course, is the scene where uh, Mr. Keating gets Ethan Hawke's character to come out of his shell and do the poem about sweaty tooth madman and the barbaric yop on the rooftops of the world. See, I know this whole movie. I love it. Um, one of the great moments where I'm in the front row, so very grateful. Yeah, right. In the Dead Row Society. <laughs> That's right. So a win-win. So here I am, you know. The conceited actor in me wants more screen time, but the film and acting student in me it couldn't be more happy about being in the front row to that moment. I'm sure. Um, so they set that up. They didn't tell us much. A lot of it was capturing the organic. Um, Robin and Ethan had prepped for it, not completely. Uh, and then everyone left the set except the Steadicam. So everyone's gone. So like we're wow. alone in the room. It's it's probably the, one of the most complete scenes for us as a teacher and student because it was just all it was only us from beginning and, to end from beginning yeah. to end and only a cameraman which was amazing he was amazing um and that was the only ingredient that was outside our own private personal world and what was amazing about that for us is that even though we were right there and the cameraman was right there we we didn't see him uh -huh. so we saw rob and we saw ethan going at it in the best possible way having this amazing magical moment and just as the students on film are discovering this with their fellow student and the y'all we're, we're completely and honestly engaged in that moment and it's just absolutely wonderful to, to be on the front line and experience that as a person and then in the acting of it, it's real. It's all real. Yeah, it seems like that of the people that I have on this show, it, it's rare that a scene is actually affecting everybody in the scene the way it's supposed to. Like there's almost really a parallel between what's happening in the dramatic action of this film and what's happening in your real lives. Yeah. It's so similar and that – seems like it would close the bridge between having to act and just be there. Yeah, and and uh, I don't know if there is. I think um, uh, Alejandro Inuratu. Inuratu, yeah. Um, he he's. I don't. I guess people probably coined this phrase, but this this idea of like method directing, like designing everything to be real, is something that I thought 
oh, I absolutely know Peter Weir was doing at that time. I don't know if he does it in his other films, but that's something that I completely admired and respected and take with me into my directing career where it's like it is absolutely great. If you can cast perfectly or get as close as possible and then you give them this real experience, then you can um, – you, I think you, abso- you absolutely get the best results. It seems like any role you play where you're part of a team, whether that's like a squad of military fighters, students, people on a sports team or something, you have this bond that becomes something you can really play off of in the scene. Yeah, and with the poets blended, you know, the main poets did blend with us, and and uh, we all blend with each other, and we made lifelong friends, and they might be lifelong friends, and and that's during from scene to scene, Ethan was very quiet and distant, like his character Todd. So we left him alone, <laughs> and and it was strange, and we didn't want to engage. Whereas Neil Perry was very outgoing, Robert John Leonard, so exciting to talk to him every day, and then in the in that scene with Yop, the barbaric Yop, and Ethan's opening up, and or Todd, yeah. it's all the same, really. <laughs> I know. Uh, we're just like we're so excited for him. There's something happening there. So it was just it's really great how how it was so it was just so real. I can't say it enough. And it's just what a wonderful way to act and direct. Yeah. I want to talk about the scene where you guys read a line of poetry and then kick a soccer ball because my understanding is you had a line there and we're about to kick the soccer ball and it cuts away from you, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, another another wonderful moment of the industry. Well, we have to respect what's best for the film, and we know it's a great movie. So, if I have to get cut out of scenes <laughs> to make it better, um, so we're on the soccer field, we're all lined up, and it's that exercise where you said we're gonna read the line of poetry and kick the ball. You told me about this, and so when I'm watching it, I see you creeping up in the line, and it, my heart's aching because I could see you getting closer and closer, and all it would take is one more person, and it would have been you. And it is, yeah, exactly. And um, and I get, I hear that a lot because the people who knew me and saw the movie were so excited because yeah. here's that moment that Kurt's going to have. But nope. Um, so it's this big disappointment. Where in the movie, if you don't even know me, it's a great, exciting moment because the person who kicks right before me is Neil Perry, and he's coming into his own. So when he kicks that ball, there's nothing more exciting in in his life at that time. But there's nothing more disappointing than me and my family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yes, we shot me saying a line. It's a piece of Shakespeare. Do you remember what it was? I don't want to lie. I, I I wish I could just make something up. It had something to do with wings and flying to be free. I oh, don't. That's probably thirty percent of Shakespeare. Yeah, but they just hand you a piece of paper. They didn't tell you where it came from. And oh, uh, I'd love to know what that was. Yeah, I should have found that out. But do you I, think if you ever read it again, it? Would... Oh yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah, but step by step, I had that same experience and it's like just and, – and they shot me. But it's that overlap that you have to do and then you find out in the editing room that that is the perfect cut. So I can't – Yeah. I can't be uh, – I can't be angry about that. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to move on to talk about some other stuff you've done in a little segment I like to call Role Association where I just throw out a title and you give me your response to it. If you have anything, you can pass. You can do whatever. I have a couple of questions about some of these things, but we'll start with – because I know that this connects to a previous segment that I've done called I Was Verite 2, which talks about how certain things in films, why can't they get them like they are in real life? It's so simple, like uh, putting actual liquid in coffee cups, saying goodbye on the telephone. So working on The Aviator, there's an I Was Verite 2 story that you have for this, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. Um so with um, association to your picket signs are perfectly beautiful and graphic – like graphic designers did it even if it's, it's supposed to be um, your everyman grabbing signs and getting out to the street to process or protest. Um, so my experience on The Aviator was I was an assistant to the production designer, Dante Ferretti. And by doing that, I was around the set all day, every day um, 
and obviously part of my job, I got to know the graphic designer who then um, sanctioned me because I was a real man with real handwriting to write the the declaration sign that says no clouds because in the story they had to um, – they had to shoot when there were clouds, so that was a big deal in not, real life. Not the production, but the people. Sorry, yeah. It, within, within the, the story, yeah, yeah. Howard Hughes wanted to shoot his Hell's Angels sequence, and in real life, they shot tons of footage, and it didn't look like the planes were moving, so they needed clouds in the sky gotcha. as a, a speed reference point. So I was very excited to be a part of this, and so I write this beautiful um, – what is it? Seven letters or something. <laughs> um, so I'm like, no clouds, and it looked great. It looked like a real person drew it. So then they go to shoot the scene, and I don't know who made that uh, decision, but all of a sudden my – Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> He's a perfectionist. But wait a minute. Yeah, I was a real guy writing the sign, so yeah. that should have been perfect. But nope, they got uh, an artist, someone from the paint department in the union maybe. That's why. Ah, uh, uh, that may be. Yeah. They literally erased my letters, no clouds, on this chalkboard and wrote – or did their own no clouds. Nobody, nobody knows. Bastards. All right. Greg the Bunny with prior guest of this show, Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I'm having <laughs> that response. I promise just... my... <laughs> Are you having a stroke? Wow. Yeah. Gilbert has that effect on people. I just, he had a 40 having... minute stroke in this room. <laughs> I'm, I, uh, I, yeah, I'm staying away from that chair. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Rocky five. What did you do in Rocky five? Um, okay, so I'm on the set of Rocky Five. I'm playing a neighbor, and uh, there's a sequence in that story uh, where Stallone playing Rocky takes his son to school mm-hmm. because they were living the high life, and now they've lost all their money, and they got to go back to the streets, Uh-oh. and they got to get back to the old neighborhood. And in doing so, they cross the path of uh, three different neighbors, kind of cheering Rocky on and saying hello. So I get cast in this role um, as a neighbor. I get uh, I get sent to wardrobe and they put me in this outfit, which is very close to what I was wearing. It's kind of like that sign. They're yeah. like, take off your black jacket and jeans and put on this black jacket and jeans. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, so then on my line is, yo, comma, tough break, rock, which means he's lost all his money and he's uh-huh. back in the old neighborhood. Um, so uh, take one happens and I know that Stallone's going to be coming around the corner towards me with his son. And his line is, everybody's got an angle, and then I come in. So Stallone's walking his kid to school, Sage, and they're coming down the street. And uh, I hear my cue line because I'm off camera at the point, and I'm going to cross. Uh, everybody's got an angle. And I go – and I cross. And I go, yo, tough break, Rock. Then I hear cut. And then the director comes over, uh, John G. Avelson, who directed the first one. And he's co-directing this one with Stallone actually. Uh. And he says, hey, Kurt, where are you from? And I proudly say, Delaware. <laughs> and he says, I know. <laughs> Which means Kurt doesn't have a Philadelphia accent. Yeah. So then Stallone comes over to me and says, yeah, yeah, just throw it away. Just throw it away. So I say, I just say back, yo, tough break, Rock. And he goes, perfect. <laughs> he wants everything done like <laughs> So I'm like, okay. So then take two. He's coming across. Everybody's got an angle. And I go, yo, tough break, Rock. And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, I'm one of him. I'm one of them. You are him. <laughs> I am him. He, he wants to put a stamp on everybody. <laughs> My instinct was to impress, impersonate him. I'm like, that's how you go real. But just do exactly what he's doing. All right. Now, this last one I'm going to ask you about, 
And I've, I keep saying this on this podcast that this film was on my list from the beginning because it's true. I had 10 or 15 films when I started doing this podcast that I wanted to get. And one was, like I always say, The Woman with the Baby Carriage and Untouchables, Someone from Dead Poet Society. And I've always wanted somebody in the orgy scene from Eyes Wide Shut. And when we were connected by Julianne, which we're, we're going to say hi to her in a second because she's here as well. It was because of Dead Poets Society, but then when I looked at your IMDb page, I saw he's an eyes wide shut, the orgy scene. Oh my God, this is two birds with one stone. This is amazing. And we briefly talked on the phone and you told me what. (laughs) Well, Matt, uh, I have this credit for this reason. Um, I had once seen a credit for Eyes Wide Shut um, after it came out. A woman had um, a a role known as Masked Buxom Blonde. (laughs) And I thought, how interesting is that credit? Masked, buxom, blonde. Um, your, your face is not seen, but you get credit for it and you've been very buxom and very blonde. Uh, doesn't say what she does. It's just she's one of those people in that scene. So I was joking with my friends about that. Next thing I know, someone put the credit on IMDb that Kurt was the masked party stud, which was really funny at the time because nobody checked it out. And so that was also part of the joke that anyone can be in that orgy. Everyone's wearing masks, you know, even. If- <laughs> I'm so glad you told me this because if you hadn't, I would have at least watched that scene going, well, that, that guy looks more studly than this guy. Who is he? Which one is he? And I wouldn't know you by face. I would just. <laughs> exactly. Or other parts. Um, but then what happened was I wrote to IMDb and go, hey, this is a mistake. So instead of giving me credit for it or take um, – yeah, instead of leaving it as it was, which was a, an official credit, uh, instead of taking it off, they simply put it uncredited. So even though I said, hey, that's not me. That didn't happen. I'm still the uncredited masked party stud. And if I had to go back, I think I would have rather put myself in as like human table. <laughs> It makes me think how many people can now get credited as mass party stud and will someone do that for me? Yeah, uh, I'd say we all do it. We should all club. do it. Yeah. Because who's going to challenge you? And I feel bad because people do get excited and say, oh my god. And I thought, listen, if I was in a Kubrick film, you'd know about it. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be talking about especially that scene. Right. But God. So Julianne, I always want to give it a French – Gabert, but it's Gabbert, right? It is Gabbert. Um, when I was 15, though, I started telling people it was Gabert or Jabert, depending on Ooh. my mood. But I was in AP French class, so <laughs> um, I've just – I've given up on that. <laughs> it's Gabbert, guys. It's cool. <laughs> so you were nice enough to uh, connect me to Kurt, and I wanted to thank you for that. And, you know, this has actually happened the last two episodes, depending on when this one comes out where I've had the people that have connected me to the guest in on the studio. So if you can connect me to a guest that I use, you can come along and be in the studio if that means anything to you. Maybe that will also propel more guest suggestions. I don't know. But thank you, Julianne, so much for doing this. Of course. Thanks for having me. This has been such a great experience. Uh, it's you. nice to have you. And uh, Kurt, is there anything that you want to tell us what you're up to now or where people can find you? Well, uh, with a direct link back to uh, Dead Poets, um, I went in there as an actor and I came out as a directing student and um, just can't tell you enough how Peter Weir was my own John Keating in life and oh, that wow. I went off to film school. And and I also learned that not all movies are made that way and that it was a really special t- moment in time. Um, you you must get, have been kind of spoiled, right? Because yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of cynicism and boredom yep, on other movies. Yeah, and, and and fighting, and it's just it's a very stressful environment. But it never showed on Dead Poets, whereas in a lot of other work I've done, not to fault it, it does happen. It's just it was never that good again, and it was just a magical uh, time. Uh, 
but yeah, from from that point on, going into film school um, and then coming out of film school, I I've worked in many facets of the industry. But right now, I've just completed my first feature. Oh, and uh, I found the right project for that. It's called Spring Awakening, based on the musical. It's actually based on the play, the play? that the musical is okay. based on. So this would be a sister project. So oh. we go back to the roots of the play wow. from 1891. It's a period piece. And we, we're doing the dramatic narrative version of Spring Awakening, even though there is a musical running around the world, touring at all times. Wow. When will we see this, do you think? Um, I'm hoping that it will come out of post this summer and uh, can't wait to show the world. And I, I know it sounds very poetic to do this, but it goes directly back to those days on Dead I'm Poets. sure it does, yeah. yeah. That's exciting. Well, uh, we'll keep our eyes peeled for it. Thank you, Kurt, so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you, Matt. Now let's uh, all stand on this desk. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, wait, I can't. <laughs> My thanks to Kurt Leitner, and I'm not kidding. If you can connect me with a guest and you're here in L.A. and you want to come sit in on the interview, you've earned it. That would be great. He did contact me after this interview to let me know it was indeed the cat sat in the hat, not shat, but that that did happen in one of the takes. Also, if we can get Spaz in the Meatballs universe and the Dead Poets Society universe combined, that Spaz in Dead Poets Society is the father of Spaz in Meatballs, that would be great. Somebody update that on Wikipedia, please. And if you need a source, you can cite the I Was There Too podcast. Let's make it official. There's no end segment today because the interview was a longer conversation worth having. You can find me at Matt Gorley on Twitter, on Twitter as I was there too. You can email me at I was there too pod at gmail.com. That's really the only and best way to uh, contact me if you have a guest suggestion or can connect me to a guest. It doesn't really work on Twitter. And I'm on Instagram at Matt Gorley and check out letterboxd.com. I'm at Matt Gorley there where I post the upcoming films that I'm watching for episodes as well as the theme song tags. And that's it. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks. Or if I don't see you, you'll hear me in two weeks. But I'm out there watching. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.